Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's another beautiful day that God's given us. If this is your first time here listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and I come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days. We don't compromise. The Word is the Word, and no matter what the Word says, that's what we teach. This is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. I hope you didn't come here to be entertained, because that's not why we're supposed to come to church. We're not supposed to come to be entertained. We're supposed to be here to see God, learn of His ways, come to follow Him in the beginning, to, you know, to start if we're not His, or learn how to follow Him stronger if we are His. We always start with a word of prayer to ask God to bless our message and to bless my mouth and to bless our ears and our hearts so that the seed falls on good soil. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, I would surely appreciate it. Ask God to help us because we all need God's help in some way today. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here today. Thank you so much for this word that you've given me today, Lord. Thank you so much for those ears in this world that are listening, Lord, to the truth. Lord, there's, there's not very many. Lord, as we live in a day and age right now, as you know, where it's the great apostasy, it's the worst it's probably ever been is nobody really wants to hear the truth anymore. They they just want their ears to be tickled. So, Lord, thank you, God, for those that tune in and that listen that, that don't just want their ears to be tickled, Lord, because we know that the truth often, most of the time, in fact, actually hurts. Lord, uh, when we come to church or we go to a church or any church, and, and all every time, every single Sunday, it makes us just feel good. Lord, how can that be your word? Because your word, it, it, it does strengthen us, Lord, but in so many ways, your word, Lord, it, it cuts us and it tells us that we're not right in this area or that area and it tells us that we need to change and it shows us things about ourselves that, Lord, you, you want different, that you want to sanctify and, Lord, those things hurt. So, Lord, uh, please turn the tide and bring us out of apostasy and bring us into a great spiritual dispensation, Lord, a great gathering to you, Lord God. And thank you for the faithful few that listen all the time to the Gospel Saving Church as I do not compromise and I don't tickle people's ears. Thank you so much, Lord God. And I pray you'd bring some more. And uh, help us to understand your word today. Help us to make application to our lives with your word today. Help us to understand completely what you want from us and to do what you ask us to do. We thank you, Lord, and we love you, and we praise you, and we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. I'll give you a moment to open up your Bibles and get there before we start our study. Again, that's Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. The title of our message today, The Pretenders of the Faith. Again, that title, The Pretenders of the Faith. So we're going to read Acts 19, 8 through, I'm sorry, 11 through 20, excuse me. And we're going to study that scripture. If you're going to read along, that'd be great. If not, then you can just listen, that'd be fine. The Bible says this. I should say Luke records this of another account of Paul. Acts 19, verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Wow. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call in the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. 
We left off last week, remember, with Paul in that synagogue in Ephesus. And he was preaching there, and he was talking to the Jews and the Jewish converts that were there, the Gentile Jewish converts that were there. Um, But because of some evil-hearted Jewish people that were there, some evil-hearted Jews that were there, they spoke evil of the way, and Paul said, you know what, I'm done. They spoke evil of the way, which was Jesus Christ's religion that he set up on earth before he ascended, and they, which means they also spoke evil of Jesus Christ, who was the way, the truth, and the life. God then, after he told Paul, or Paul decided that in his Holy Spirit he should get out of that synagogue, God told Paul to go because he opened up a door in what they called the School of Tyrannus, which was a Greek Gentile school where, you know, the Greeks gathered together to learn things and God opened up a door, a one an opportunity door, right? That Paul got in either an invitation or he walked up and he said, hey, I'm going to preach here. And the Holy Spirit had made a way and they said, well, come on in. Let's, let's hear about your Jesus. And he did it, as we know the scripture says, for two full years. Wow. Today we open up our section of scripture with Paul and his crew still in Ephesus and Luke writing to us of some amazing miracles that God did through Paul during that two-year time he would have been there in that school of Tyrannus. Look at verses 11 and 12 again of Acts 19. Look what that look look at those miracles that God was doing through Paul. Now God worked unusual miracles and the reason they were unusual is because you see never before in the Bible had miracles like this been done. They haven't been done before and they only by Paul now and after Paul miracle the kind of miracles that God was doing with Paul here were not done. So God did unusual worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that Even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them, which means that just something was brought from Paul and the sickness left the person and the evil spirits went out from them. So those that were demon-possessed were freed from their demons, all from getting a a handkerchief or an apron from Paul. All I can really say of the miracles that God was doing with Paul here is, wow. I mean, they were some amazing, amazing, awesome miracles. I mean, think of what Luke just wrote. Luke just told us there that by God's power through Paul, you know, because everything comes from God. If you do things for God, it comes from God. That power comes from the Holy Spirit, from God. It, it, it was so strong that handkerchiefs, aprons, so, so think it said handkerchiefs or aprons, so think pieces of fabric. That's kind of how I visualized. You know, I don't see Paul wearing an apron. I don't see him as a chef. Uh, but I see a, a piece of fabric, you know, pieces of fabric that he touched or blankets that he may have used for himself. So they were brought from him, him his body or his hand, uh, to the sick and, and the demon-possessed. And, and these garments, I'll just call them garments or fab, piece, piece of fabric, had such an anointing on them. Just from being with Paul and touching his body, that the sick were healed and the demons were cast out, those that received them. Wow, is again all I can say. How how would this have happened? Well, Paul, being busy in the school of Tyrannus, of course, uh, one of his disciples, one of his followers, you know, as he had little understudies, little disciples of his that that were, he was training in the ways of Jesus Christ. They were going out through the land, I'm sure, and preaching the gospel and as they would come across somebody demon possessed or sick, they might go. They might have gone back to Paul and said, "Hey, Paul, there's you know there's this person or there's that person, you know." And Paul would say, "Well, okay, I, I prayed over this piece of cloth here. You know, go take it to them, and then you know when they get it, hey, everything will be better. They'll they'll be healed." And he had such faith being led by the Holy Spirit that he actually sent them with this piece of cloth to take it to the ill or demon possessed person that when it came to them. By someone else's hand, no, yet Paul not even being present, they were either healed of their illness or sickness or the demon that was possessing them was cast out. That's why I say, wow, the only other miracles, disciple level, apostle level, we'll call it, like, you know, Paul's, Paul's peer levels with Peter, James, John, you know, Barnabas, so on and so forth. The only other miracles, disciple, apostle level that compared with what God does through Paul here in Acts 19 is what happened with Peter in Acts 5. Remember, we got Peter, uh, God was moving in mighty ways to move and work in the church and he was gathering many people to himself. And in Acts 5, we have Peter as he's walking through the streets, his shadow was falling on people and the people that were having his shadow, just his shadow, uh, there, they were being healed. But 
the huge difference here, why I, I put Paul's miracle, the, the, the miracles that God was doing through Paul here, even above what Peter did here, is Peter had to be present at the time to do those miracles. See, to me, God's miracles through Paul here in Acts 19 are above those that Peter did and really more similar to Jesus Christ. Remember, somebody that had a sick daughter or a demon-possessed son or a daughter would just come to Jesus and say, Jesus, my daughter is ill or my son, he, you know, he's possessed. And, and every time, you know, the demon seizes him many times and throws him into the fire or throws him into the water to try to kill him. And, you know, can you do something? And Jesus would say, wherever they were, it didn't matter. He wasn't present with them. He would say, go in peace. Your son or your daughter has been made well. And then that person would go back and they would find out from the same hour which had happened that, wow, the, the, the person, their, their child or their loved one or their servant that was sick or demon-possessed was healed from the moment. And they knew it was from the moment that Jesus just spoke a word. Wow. To me, Jesus Christ, he didn't have to be there to heal. Just like Paul, Acts 19, Paul didn't have to be there to do those healings. Here in Ephesus, God was moving to bring these people to him, and he was moving strong through Paul in mighty ways and healing people through pieces of cloth that he sent to them. Wow. Uh, coincidentally, as I said already earlier, we never read of Paul or anybody doing any miracles like this in the rest of the Bible. So I see kind of these miracles here. God had a specific purpose and reason in mind that he had Paul to send these these pieces of garments to people for them to be healed. They, you know, it might have meant something in their culture when you received a garment and then God was saying, hey, I'm the God of the garment too. I, I don't know. We don't have the inside. I, I would have loved this to have been an Old Testament story because God seemed to describe when he did certain things like this, he would describe that miracle and and you know, like in Egypt, when, when God was delivering the children of Israel from the land of Egypt by Moses' hand, God struck all the certain things. He struck the frogs, he struck the, 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 the river, he struck the, you know, had, had the, the mites. All of those things, Egyptians had made gods, and we know that. So I wish we, this would have been kind of an Old Testament story, but we'll have to find out when we get to heaven, those that are believers or listen to me, why God used pieces of cloth. Because I see them as just a time, just for a time and a place as this in Ephesus here, unlike, again, any others that we've ever read of in the Bible. Can someone do any miracles like this today? They probably could, but it would have to be that God would say, hey, this is the way I want to do it. Hey, you know, he would have to lead somebody to say, hey, you know, take a garment and just send it to this person who's sick or ill. Uh, you know, and they would have to be healed. But of course, it'd have to be through God's will and if that's what he wanted done. Now, I don't want to take anything away, and this next statement that I'm going to make, the next little section I'm going to give you here is, I don't want to take anything away from what Paul did here, what God did through Paul in Acts 19. Uh, but I do have to say this, sadly, sadly, on the ugly side of Christianity, hence the, the, the title of the sermon kind of, it's multifaceted, it, pretenders of the faith. Uh, it, it, it totally, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's been some evil and apostate and ugly religions out there, some ugly ministers who actually have come up with this uh, sending out prayer rugs, uh, sending out healing mats, uh, things like that. And, and of course, they've abused what God did through Paul here because, of course, they send them out and ask for donations. Or, or I've heard them on TV or I've heard of them on TV going, if, if you just send us your donation, we'll send you this healing mat or this healing rug or this healing whatever. And of course, the only place in the Bible where God sent out a healing anything to anybody is right here in Acts 19. Never before do we have anybody praying over something or sending out any kind of rug or material at all ever, and then the person that getting it being healed. So of course they're, they're using, or I, I would say abusing, this Acts 19 section here where God moved in a mighty way with unusual miracles, and of course they, they're doing it today for money. Years ago, I, I received this prayer rug, one of these prayer rug pictures years ago, and I don't remember exactly if they said, you know, you can have the real thing or, you know, just make a donation or, or this is one, you know, just lay it on and, and, and kneel on it and, and pray. And, and what a ridiculous, ridiculous concept. You know, if, if it were really true and, and healing mats and healing rugs were sent out, today we have the internet. And we would have 
people in droves coming out on the internet going, man, I can't believe it. this so-and-so ministry sent me this prayer rug or this prayer mat and, and, and nothing, but nothing happened. And so we don't have any, anybody accounting the saying this is actually happening, which means that these people are pretenders of the faith. They're really not Christians, but they're pretending to be Christians to get your money. Um, sadly, they've hurt a lot of people by doing this. A lot of people, if you go online and you punch in prayer rug or prayer mat, you'll find a really angry man. I forget his name now, but really angry man at religion. And, and he's really, really vicious toward the things of, that, that people have done in the name of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's not really God. That's not really Jesus Christ. That's just man doing stupid things uh, in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, that really hurt people and really turn people away as these heretical exploits of many false ministers have turned lost souls away from the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And, and that's really, really, really saddening and really, really, really makes me angry. Uh, and I, I don't today or will not in the future ever feel sorry for them on Judgment Day. And not even one bit, whether they were to die today or whether they... The end comes and Christ comes back. Their condemnation will be just. Jesus said, if you remember correctly, and I'm going to use this scripture uh, multilaterally or bilaterally. Jesus said, if anyone does something to cause one of these little ones to stumble, and the context of that situation was he was speaking about a young believer in him, a young new convert in him. If anyone caused them to stumble, he said it would be better if a millstone were put around his neck, and he was cast into the sea. Well, what, do you, what do you get a picture of when that happens? You get a picture of certain death. Somebody's plunging to the sea, the bottom of the sea, and they, the millstone's going to sink them, and they're going to drown, and they're going to die. So we're not talking about little his little ones being you know, made to stumble here, which I'm sure that has happened because that offended me when that happened to me. But as far as even the lost are concerned, those that drive the lost away from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I don't see that making God very happy either. For Jesus said, I came to seek not that which was all right, but for that which was lost. And so we know that he came to seek and save the lost, and we know that he came to save sinners. And anybody that's even driving sinners away from the cross, again, their condemnation Will be just. Will be just. Anyone that uses God's word just for profit, or even tries to do so, is going to have a rude awakening when they meet Jesus Christ face to face. They will not like his response to what they've done. Speaking and on that topic, as I told you, that's kind of the multi-level tier idea of our pretenders of the faith title. Speaking of the pretenders of the faith, using the ways and ideas of God improperly. Look at who does it here in our scripture today. Look at verses 13 through 15, because we have some pretenders of the faith that are right here in our scripture. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, these were exorcists, Jewish exorcists that wandered around from place to place. Those who were obviously looking for demons, uh, demon-possessed people to try to cast demons out of. And they took it upon themselves to call in the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... To the person who was demon-possessed, they'd walk up and they said, We exercise you, me, me, and that means get out of that person, you, you demon. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. You could tell there they didn't know the Jesus that Paul preached, but they said, We exercise you, we cast the demon out in the Jesus whom by Paul preaches. Verse 14, also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, here, we're just going to focus on one group. There seem to be two groups of Jewish exorcists here, but I'm not sure if there were. There may or, not have, may or may not have been. Whether there were two groups or who tried to cast demons out by the Jesus whom Paul preached doesn't matter because Luke seems to speak of this situation as if it was just one group, the seven sons of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva. And I see this idea, especially in the recorded consequences in the next two verses. So I'm just going to speak of this situation and those who did what they do here as if it was just one group. The one group compromise of the seven sons of Sceva. Of these seven guys, please understand, as we could tell, as the demons even acknowledged, as they knew who, you know, when, when Jesus walked among them, he said, Jesus, oh, you son of God, why have you come here, you know, so soon to, to torment us? They knew who he was. 
They knew who the Jesus whom Paul preached was, but they did not know, if you remember the scripture, they did not know whom these seven sons of the Jewish priest Sceva was. They were just seven Jews wandering sons of this high priest, and they were Jewish exorcists, not Christian or Messianic Jews by any means, and the scripture doesn't even imply so at all. Um, Now, believe it or not, I do believe that these guys had actually exorcised demons from people before Acts 19. How do I say this? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, I I think that they might have had some success exercising demons. Number one, Matthew 12, Jesus Christ cast a demon out of a person, and the Jews spoke evil against him for doing so, and said that he was casting out demons by, remember, Beelzebub, and that would be Matthew chapter 27. Who is Beelzebub? That's Satan. And in rebuking them for their unbelief of him as who he said he was, the Christ, and remember, since he had just casted out that demon by the incredible miracle that he did, he replied this, Matthew 12, 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Which means, according to even Jesus Christ there, there were some sons of these Jewish critics of him that were able to cast out demons. For if there weren't, he wouldn't have said what he did in Matthew chapter 12. Hence, here in Acts 19, why they even thought they had a chance to cast out the demons at all. That's the first reason. Number two reason why these seven sons of Sceva thought that they could cast out this demon. As we we know, uh, by biblical and extra-biblical sources that tell us that the Jews were able to have some success casting out demons. The first exorcism appears in the Bible in the youth narratives of David. Remember 1 Samuel, where Saul would be possessed by an evil spirit that God would send him. Ooh, that's a concept that we don't want to really talk about too much, right? But But it happened. And yet, as David, remember, played music, the evil spirit was forced out of Satan, or out of, out of Saul. Well, there you go. That's an exorcism. David practiced exorcism. He was an exorcist, okay? He, it was pretty, pretty cool, right? Maybe you didn't think about it like that, but it, read the Bible. It's there. The book of Tobit contains the first explicit description of an informal exorcism. The book of Tobit was like a Jewish book. Josephus recounts incidents of possession and exorcism in, in his Antiquities of the Jews, 258, 45 through 48. In his description, exorcism involved burning herbs and immersing the possessed person in water. So you see, the Jews actually did have some ways to exorcise demons from people. Again, these were itinerant or wandering Jews that this is what they went around and did. They tried to you know, possess, or I'm sorry, they tried to exercise the demon from the demon-possessed person, but then they saw Paul, and we'll, we'll get to that later. Anyway, do these pretenders of the Christian faith actually succeed in casting out the demon in this way that they weren't really supposed to, because they weren't really Christians, uh, by the Jesus whom Paul preached? Were they able to? Look at verses 16 and 17. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Ouch. They, so they knew who Jesus was. They knew who Paul was, but they didn't know who these guys were. Verse 16. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So what was the outcome of their trying to cast the demon out by their non-traditional Jewish ways and by the, them trying to be pretenders of the faith? They had zero success in their undertaking. They were absolutely not able to cast the demons out by the Jesus whom Paul preached. They should have stuck to the ways that their Bible or their traditions had taught them to up until that point. The demon acknowledges that he knows Jesus Christ, just like he did, just like the demons did when Jesus Christ was alive when he came up to him, and he acknowledges this demon and this guy acknowledges that he knows Paul, who was Christ's servant. And one thing about Christ's servants is they got God living within them. So hence why the demon recognized them, because they saw God in Christ being born again as Paul was. They saw God in Christ living inside of Paul. But the demon says to the seven sons of Sceva, who are you? Who, meaning, I, I see that as, 
Who do you think you are trying to hold the authority of Jesus Christ, whom you don't even believe in, over us? Wow. And result of this demon not recognizing these Jews as born again Christians, having God and Christ living in them, the demon gets angry. He jumps on them, and the scripture says he overpowers them. What does that mean? He whooped them. He whooped them good. So good. He whooped them so good that verse 16, I believe, tells us they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So he attacked them by tearing off their clothes, wounding them, most likely biting, scratching, punching, hitting, kicking them all over their bodies. Probably the demon was trying to kill them. Kind of a scary thing. And whatever else he might have been doing to try to hurt them. But it was a scary situation nonetheless. These pretenders of the Christian faith get torn up by the demon because he saw through their pretender faith in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not a true Christian today, so not born again, you need to stay away from the Ouija boards and all of this you know, seance stuff and the demon possessions or, or the world of demons or any of the evil spirits or Satan, etc. Uh, by these guys here, they don't know who you are because you're not safe from them. As these seven sons of Sceva weren't safe from this demon, you're not safe from them either. And the main and huge problem with what they do here, these seven sons of Sceva, why they face the consequences that they do, is that they're not born-again Christians. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have God's protection on them. They're Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Christ, the only Savior of the world, their promised Messiah that they rejected, and they were still under the Mosaic or the old covenant law of Moses. And so the Bible says that they're lost and dead in their sins. Hence the title and why I keep calling them the pretenders of the faith. They attempted to exercise this demon by the name of Jesus whom Paul preached, with, but they were not Christ's friends. They were not Christ's friends. And because they weren't his friends, this demon recognizes this immediately. He doesn't see Jesus Christ living within them. Hence, the demon is not afraid of these seven sons of Sceva, and he attacks and mauls and abuses them terribly. It reminds me of what happened when, with Jesus and his disciples in Mark 5, 1-7, when he got, well, I'll just, I'll just read it. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, he, that mean Jesus, came out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And listen to this. No one could bind him, not even with chains. That's how powerful and strong a demon-possessed person can be. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. That means that people would go around him, and this demon-possessed man was so strong and so vicious and so mean and evil that they would be, did have to get away. Yeah, we see that today. They came in, the demon didn't see God's protection on them of being saved and being born again, and he drove them out and he hurt them. Real bad, could have killed them actually if they not get out of there. And, and verse 5 of Mark uh, 1, And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tubes crying out and cutting himself with stones. Demon possession is nothing to be played with and it still happens today and, it, and it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing until Jesus Christ met these demons there in Mark 5, verses 6 and 7. Look at when, when they saw Jesus from afar. This is, this is Jesus' power. This is the protection and the love and the power and the awesomeness of Jesus. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out, cried out with a loud voice and said, What am I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you. That means he was begging him. So you see the difference between somebody that doesn't have Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself or anybody that's got Jesus Christ living within him? Hey, Paul, we know, you know, Paul had God's protection on him and living within him. And he says here, this demon here in Mark 5, 6, or 7, what have I to do to you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I implore you, I beg you by God that you do not torment me. And of course, then shortly after, Jesus Christ casts out the demon and the man is free. The power 
of Jesus Christ to protect, like just, just to be who he was, God incarnate in the flesh, the power he had over the demons and the power that he had in Paul to protect him for these demons who had never, this demon-possessed man that was in our scripture today had never even met Paul, but he knew Paul for they tried to cast him out by the Jesus whom Paul preached and just his name. They knew him because he was a born-again, saved child of God. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, if you ever meet a demon-possessed person, if you are truly born again and you are saved, you would, call your, you know, you would consider yourself a born-again, saved Christian, then cast that demon out boldly in the name of Jesus, the Christ of God, just like Jesus Christ and Paul did. For they will know who you are. That's a, both a scary thing and a... And an and a awesome thing, because they know who we are, but they also know how, who to attack. Because if we're really on God's side and Christ's side, then they attack us too. we got to be careful of their attacks. Gird up the loins of our minds. But if you ever meet them, cast them out. Don't be afraid. There's power in the name of Jesus. But if you're not truly saved, and you're not born again, and you meet one, if I were you, I would run for the hills, because staying in their presence would most likely be dangerous to your health. So for these seven sons of the Jewish man named Sceva, we have a sad end result, right? They get attacked. They, they almost get murdered. You know, one demon-possessed man hurt seven sons, which, you know, they were younger men, most likely. They weren't old men. They were, the man was alive. The Jewish priest was alive. So we know that they were men. And he wounded and sent them running. Seven men versus him, just the one. That was a bad result. That's, that's really bad. But for God's kingdom, we have a pretty awesome end result. Look at our last verses, verses 17 through 20. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. That would be the fear of the Lord. And that would be what Solomon writes about in Proverbs 9, 10. And the name of the Lord Jesus, it goes on to say, was magnified. You better believe it was. Jesus, Jesus, his name is glory. Oh my goodness, it's great. Oh wow, verse 18. And many who had believed, believed because of the unfortunate bad outcome of the seven sons of Sceva, which they had heard about or they had witnessed. They came and they confessing and telling their deeds. This is repentance unto Jesus Christ uh, in faith, right? Verse 19, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Uh, more repentance as their, their repentance has fruit, right? That's how you know true repentance. The true repentance of a true child of God will be that as they live, once they find out something that they're doing is wrong, they'll either stop or true repentance unto true salvation. When somebody does get saved, then their life changes dramatically as these here people here. And many of them who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them inside of them all. This is a turning to Jesus Christ with their heart first. And of course, it follows with actions. And that action, what, what did that action produce? And they counted up the value of them all, all the books that they had burned of all their evil, satanic, you know, evil witchcraft that they were into. Total 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, just going on a Price of Silver website today, Price of Silver could have meant either a drachma or a shekel back then. If these 50,000 pieces of silver were drachmas, the cost of today of these books would have been about $112,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of repentance. You, you, repentance? It's like if you really love something, if you really love to go out to eat, what do you do? You go out to a nice place that costs you a lot. If you, you know, I don't really like this meal, then you go to the, the one place where you can get the dollar menu, right? You go to eat cheap, right? These people were showing repentance by the boatload here. If it was a shekel, if the books were worth 50,000 pieces of a shekel silver, it would have been about $287,000 today. I say, wow, either way, that's some big repentance. True repentance leads first to the heart change and then to the ways of the person. These people were getting saved. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You bet your bottom dollar 
that it did. Almost every time scripturally that we see God doing mighty miracles and exercising demons from people, we see the lost respond with repentance unto Christ because of the sheer power of Jesus Christ and the ease of the mighty works. When exorcisms were done outside of Jesus Christ, because again, just like I talked about earlier, there were exorcisms done in the Jewish faith, done outside of Jesus Christ, and even before he was alive in the flesh, they were labored in time intensive. When Jesus Christ did them, and most of the time his disciples, his true apostles did them, they were immediately cast out. There wasn't a, oh, we cast you out in the name of Jesus. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's funny. I'm not going to do that. They were immediately cast out, and they did so because they were forced to because of the power of Jesus Christ and the power of his name for his friends and his disciples or friends or disciples when they used it over an illness or over a demon-possessed person. People today underestimate the power of Jesus Christ and the power of his name that is available to his friends. They underestimate the power of his name and who he was over evil situations, over demons, over their problems, or whatever issues that they may be having in their lives. They underestimate the power of the name of Jesus Christ. He and his name are powerful. So powerful, Paul writes this, Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God also has exalted, has highly exalted and given him, Jesus Christ, the name which is above every name. So any name that you can name, I don't care what name it would be, God gave him a name and he exalted it above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Still the most powerful name today, by the way. His name will be the most powerful name until Judgment Day, and His name will be the most powerful name all the way through eternity. Praise God. The pretenders of the Christian faith or the pretenders of the face, as I shortened it for our sermon title today, the seven sons of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva. They saw the sheer absolute power of the name of the Jesus Christ that Paul preached over sickness, over illness, over disease, and over those that were demon-possessed, that were were possessing people, and they saw the ease of that using Jesus Christ's name over all of these things, and they thought that they could use Jesus Christ's name, the name above all names, to cast the demon out of a possessed man easily, right? Their ways took a long time. They thought, oh, we'll just take a shortcut. We'll use use the name of Jesus Christ and we'll cast those demons out. That'll be easy. And, And they thought, well, you know, we know how dangerous it could be. Because, you know, demons, they had seen what demons had done to people or almost done to people. And they knew how harmful they were. So they said, well, well, we'll be safe if we use the name of Jesus Christ over these evil spirits. Uh, but guess what? They were wrong. They were wrong. These, pre- these pretenders of the faith missed one huge fact. The demons were not afraid, nor had, they to, had, nor had they to obey the name of Jesus that came from the mouth of those who were not his friends. They didn't have to obey the name of Jesus by those that were not truly saved or born again. The demon basically laughed at these pretenders of the Christian faith and attacked them brutally, probably nearly killing them had they not gone out of the house And he sent them away naked and wounded. Ouch. As I prayed for this last part of what God would have me to say, he inspired me with these next words, which relate to the seven sons of Sceva in our text today for those living in our day and age today. Today, we're literally in a time period and age worldwide, I might add, worldwide as we see the effects of the apostate spirit that's in our world today. We see it affecting every nation all over the world, and it's affected Christianity globally all over the world. We see uh, we're in a time period today of a prophecy that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew chapter 7. He, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21, and I'll explain it just as I go. It's really simple. 
Uh, maybe you've never thought of it before, but it's really simple, but it's really powerful, and it's kind of really scary. I've had people tell me when I gave them the scripture that they said to me, literally people said to me, that scares me. And it should, and here's why. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Take that first part. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That tells us this is the judgment day. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in that day, is what he goes, he says, in that day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. This is speaking about when we come before Christ after we die. And he just said that not everyone that comes that has called him Lord, Lord, then, both then and in their lives now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is getting into heaven. Well, why that scares people? Here's why. Who calls Jesus Lord? Well, Muslims don't call Jesus Lord. He's Isa, a, a, a prophet to them. He's less than a man in the, in the Muslim religion. So we know that's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Because Jesus Christ, we just read that God gave him a name above all names, right? So it can't be Isa of, of Islam because Isa's name in Islam is below Muhammad. right? So they don't call him Lord. He's a prophet. Just a, a man of God that lived and spoke the way of how to get to Allah, you know, but he, was, he wasn't even the last prophet. He was just one of the guys that came and kind of guiding people that way. Well, that's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. The only people that call Jesus Christ Lord are those that either are truly his or those that think that they're his. As Jesus just said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That means that they were deceived. That means that they thought they were something that they were not, but that they claimed to be. Lord, Lord, oh, Jesus. And Jesus, when they come to me, you're not getting in. You're not. You see, it says many who say to me, Lord, Lord, shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we certainly see that today. Today we see worldwide we have many right now that believe themselves to be right with God and Jesus Christ. So saved and born again, but they're deceiving themselves. Why? Because of the last part. They say the words, Lord, Lord, but Jesus just said there, but they don't do the will of my Father in heaven. What is the Father's will for salvation? Is it, I believe in Jesus? Because if it's, I believe in Jesus, well then, even the demons believe, and we know they aren't saved. So it can't just be a simple belief, because even the demons believe and they're not saved. So, so what is the will of the Father outside of a simple belief? If you can't answer that question, that scares me. And that should scare you too, because if you know the will of the Father, you're on your way to heaven, you're born again. But if you don't know the will of the Father in heaven, unto salvation now. I'm not talking about the will of the Father for a Christian, somebody that's already saved, right? Those wills are that we're going to, be doing his works, we're going to be praying, we're going to be, do, we're going to be doing those things. We're going to be evangelizing, we're going to be you know, going to church, we're going to be doing lots of amazing things. We're going to be sharing the word with people, we're going to be reading the word, we're going to be praying. Right? Those are things that Christians do, those that are already saved, do. those are the wills of the Father for those that are already saved. But what's the will of the Father to those that aren't saved? Or how do we even get saved in the beginning? If you say it's works, the Bible says, by no work is anybody saved, only by grace your face. So we got to be careful there because we don't want to have a works doctrine. Works don't save anybody. It's the grace of God through, through true faith. But what is that true faith? As I said, many today worldwide right now believe themselves to be right with God. They're fulfilling that prophecy, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And so they believe that they're saved. They believe that they're born again, but they're deceiving themselves. Many right now call Jesus Lord, Lord, but as I see, as I know what the will of the Father is, Jesus makes it very clear in Scripture, if we'll seek Him, different passages, different sections actually, but they don't do the will of the Father. They don't care about the will of the Father. They think the will of the Father is works to get saved, and that's not how people get saved. The Bible makes that very clear. But they don't know, and you can't do something that you don't know. Wow. Which means that today there are many pretenders of the faith. There's our last tier 
for that idea of a pretender of the faith. The pretenders of the Christian faith think that they're covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They so think that they're safe from hellfire and they're safe from condemnation, but they're wrong. They're wrong just like the seven sons of Sceva were wrong when they thought that the name of Jesus Christ was going to protect them from the demon-possessed man, but it didn't. The pretenders of the Christian faith today profess to love Jesus Christ. They profess to know Jesus Christ. But here's the will of the Father that we see very clearly. They don't live their lives like it. They, they mirror the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ said in John 14, 21. He says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Now we know that works don't save us, but the Bible says that we're saved for works. So somebody truly saved is going to keep the commandments of Jesus Christ. Somebody that is truly born again is going to be doing the words of Jesus Christ. So if you live your life and you don't do his words, it's not that you have to do his words to get saved. You have to find out the will of the Father. So it's not that you're not saved because you didn't do the works to get saved, but we know you're not saved. you got to know right now you're not saved if you don't keep his commandments. He says, it, he says it's him who keeps his commandments that loves him. That means if you don't keep his words, then you don't love him. But you aren't saved by works. It's a little complicated, but it's very simple. Those who keep his commandments are those that have been born again and saved. For nobody can do the things of God and live the life like Jesus Christ lived and do what he says unless they're born again. The people today that are pretenders of the faith absolutely perfectly mirror what his apostle John says in 1 John 2, 3-6. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. There I know that I'm born again. Wow, I'm doing the things of God. Wow, it's hap- wow that's cool. Verse 4, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments or his words or his things that he told us to do is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. If By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as Jesus walked. So today, in light of the prophecy of Christ in Matthew 7, and what Jesus Christ said in John 14, and what is apostle, the same John, what, you know, the first epistle, Right, First John 2, 3-6, I would strongly encourage everyone who's listening to me today or, or those whom you even see around you to examine yourselves or even those that are around you to see if you're actually in or still in the faith of Jesus Christ. If you would consider yourself a Christian so saved and born again. Please, 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 people, examine your lives up against the biblical life of Jesus Christ and how he lived. How did he live? He lived in holiness. He lived in godliness. He followed God's ways. He followed God's moral laws. He loved people. He showed his love for God by his actions. Do you strive to obey Jesus Christ's words today? All of them. Do you strive to? This is, these are indications of whether you're truly saved or whether you're not truly saved. Again, you're not going to get saved by starting to do these things, but you have to find the will of the Father, Matthew 7, 21. But these are indications as to, you could see for yourself, you can judge your own self and say, is this really me? Do you strive to obey Jesus Christ's words? Do you love Jesus Christ and seek his face and spend time with him in his word daily as he did with God? Remember, he would go off on the mountain and talk to God and and seek out God's heart. Do you get on your knees in prayer as we saw Jesus on his knees in prayer? Do you strive to abstain from sinfulness and do you strive to live in holiness? And how do we find holiness? We find holiness in the Bible. We find holiness as God's ways. But do you live? in those holy ways? Do you strive to live a life of love towards others, forgiving them of their wrongs towards you? Do you strive to not use profanity or watch profanity or hear profanity? Because that's not godly. That's not holiness. Profanity is not holiness. Who are you? Do these things show you I am in Christ. I've been born again because, wow, I do these things. Or are you trying to 
you know, making an attempt to do these things in hopes that God would save you. No work will save you. But if you're saved, these things will be evident in your life. And if they're not, what you need to do is you need to seek God's face and the Word of God and Jesus Christ's words in the New Testament. And, and you need to ask Him, Jesus, what is the will of the Father? How do I come to be born again? That very question right there, please again, listen. If you care, if the, the life that I described is not you, then you need to get on your knees and ask God and seek the Word of God and seek the words of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus Christ, please show me how to be born again. I don't live in those ways. I don't even strive to live those ways. But please, I want to be saved. Would you show me what the will of the Father is? Will you show me how to be born again? Would you see God's face? For Jesus said, all those who seek shall find, right? Seek his face and seek the word of God especially if you find yourself not matching up to the life of Jesus Christ. And when he shows you, when he shows you, when you seek his face and he shows you, repent. Repent and do what he says. That's what he said. Repent and do what he says. I hope you do, and I hope you seek, and I pray for you now. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this message. We thank you, Lord God, for your love. We thank you, Lord God, for the way you reach out to people the way you manifest yourself to people, Lord God, and, and, and the hope that they'll turn to you, Lord God, just like you, you have shown us great things today, Lord God. And so, Lord, I, pr I pray, Lord God, that those that are listening to me right now, if, if they're yours, Lord, I pray they'd be bold in you. And I pray, dear God, that they would love you more now than ever before and that they would strive to live a life worthy of the calling of what you have called them with, Lord with their works, with their actions, with their very words, with every single thought in their minds, Lord. As we know your word says that even those that are saved will, will, will strive to obtain a, in their minds that we think of the high things, we think of the holy things, we think of the godly things, and not even on this earth. And Lord, if those that are listening to me right now, if any find themselves not following Jesus Christ, not their lives, don't resemble the life that Jesus Christ lived, God, then I pray that you would dig out that hole in their hearts, Lord God, and I pray you'd make that hole hurt until they seek your face, until they seek Jesus Christ's words in the New Testament and ask and seek, Lord, for you to make them born again, for you to give them your Holy Spirit so that they can be born again, so that they can be transformed. Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Lord, that if we are in Christ, then we are a new creature. The old is gone and the new has come. So Lord, if we're truly yours, then our lives are going to be going to be fingerprints of that. But if we're not yours, Lord God, then our lives are going to be fingerprints of the other, of sinfulness, of idolatry, of lust for this world. So God, please show those today that are not yours or that have backslidden off the path what they need to do. Help them find what they need to do to come to be born again and come to be saved. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, Lord God. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.